Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this discussion. I have a wonderful panel of auspicious entities here with me. I'm going to start at this end. Uh, over here on my left, I have Simone Bor Santa Maria, who is a performer. N- welcome. Thank you for coming today. I know all your lives are busy, so to be here is no mean feat in itself. Anna McGann, who's also a performer. Uh, thank you for coming, Anna. Uh, Nicolina Lardeman, who's a senior associate at Marshall and Dent Lawyers. So she's ask, answering all the very tricky questions that we might have. Uh, then to my right, we have uh, Fern. Sorry, Fern, I've just lost your... Fern Downey, yeah. who comes to us from Canada and is the president of the International Federation of Actors. So we're very, 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 very fortunate to have Fern here with us today. And then to my far right, we have Zoe Angus, who we all know is the director of Actors' Equity for Australia and New Zealand. So welcome, ladies, and thank you for coming today. We were just talking um, over lunch about how there seems to be a sort of a a, a new thought bubble of, of women's issues generally sort of in the press and in the media, in Victoria especially, I think every day in the age there's another article on, you know, gender, gender gap pay, pay gaps in the workplace and, and um, working conditions for women versus those for men. And there seems to be a general zeitgeist at the moment that we're riding, and we're riding on that crest of a wave. And so this sort of discussion is actually very timely and hopefully will mean that we can make and activate change. So firstly, we're going to start with the legalities of of what it is for women generally in the workplace, um, some of the issues that they face in terms of pay gap um, or sexual discrimination, ageism, all the sorts of things that women across all work um, and and all industries might be facing. So I'm going to throw to Nicolina to talk on the macro, if if we may. Thank you. I practice uh, primarily in workplace discrimination and particularly workplace discrimination for women. I act for women of all ages. Um, I have a quite a large, which is quite sad, a large practice acting for women who are going on maternity leave or returning from maternity leave and finding themselves suddenly being made redundant. They're often been at their workplaces for a number of years and have discovered upon uh, becoming pregnant that they're no longer a valuable asset for their employer. Uh, At the other end of the spectrum, I also act for a lot of women who are in their early 60s who discover, again, that been working at a company for a number of years, and this is across every single type of organisation and industry, including media, um, factory workers, women in in corporate positions, banks, um, it's everywhere. And... I, again, act for women who turn 62, 63, been with the company for a long time and find themselves out of a job. Uh, Or not out of a job, but being gently prompted to leave the organisation on good terms. Uh, I appear quite regularly at the Human Rights Commission, uh, also at the uh, Fair Work Commission and the Federal Circuit Court fighting for women's rights who are being discriminated against And it's not just ageism, it's uh, sexual discrimination because they are female and wanting to have a child or um, different types of sexual harassment within the workplace. It's it's quite sad uh, how 
how large it is and how much of my practice it takes up. Um, Nicolina, only 50 years ago there was a marriage bar though. And on, a couple of weekends ago, um, Annabel Crabb wrote a great article about the 50-year anniversary of Holt lifting the marriage bar, which was that 50 years ago, if you were working as a secretary in a company or whatever and you, you got married on the weekend, you had to leave your job. You had to declare that you were married and you had to leave. You, it was actually illegal to work as a married woman. And that was the case up until 50 years ago. So I know that seems quite unbelievable, but I guess we also have to remember what we have won as women. Um, we have to keep focusing on what we've still got to, to win, but that is a significant achievement, is it not? That, you know, we're now long, it was an illegal thing and, and women would still work, some women still worked married, but they did it surreptitiously and it wasn't something that, you know, was recommended. Um, so there has been some wins. We've won some ground, right? It's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> definitely. We've definitely won some ground. And I think if you are, and I think the panel is going to discuss this later, but if you are interviewing for any role and an employer asks you, have you just got married or are you planning to have children, you can definitely say, not answering that question, there's no legal rights anymore for an employer to ask you that or to make any assumptions on your, your marital state or having children. Thank you, that's fascinating. Now, we're going to throw to Zoe just to talk more specifically about performers' rights in regards to these issues, pregnancy and marriage. I think we're allowed to work married now as an actress, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I Hope think so. it's an imperative, actually. Um, so, Zoe, can you talk to us generally about your experience of um, performers and what performers face on a daily basis being women? Um, can I put it in a particular context first? Because I think there is a... Uh, there are a couple of particular um, circumstances that mean that performers are, are particularly vulnerable compared to other <laughs> workers in the labour market. And I think there's two key things. One is that at the core of the employment relationship, anywhere in the labour market, at the core of the employment relationship is, uh, is a relationship of direction and obedience, uh, which means that an employer anywhere you know, in the labour market can say employee do that, uh, provided it's reasonable, uh, and an employee has to do it, as long as it's not unreasonable. Uh, and that core dynamic, anywhere else in the labour market, relates to external conduct. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, when you talk about that, that kernel of the employment relationship, across the labour market, it's about, um, you know, the, the, the boundaries around what is a reasonable or unreasonable direction uh, deal with external behaviours. So, um, is it reasonable to work a 14-hour day or is that excessive unreasonable overtime? Is it reasonable to lift that unsafely? Uh, there's a boundary around what is reasonable, a reasonable direction. Uh, what are unreasonable duties that you might need to do? All of the whole... And there's a whole body of, of case law coming decisions in the Fair Work Commission. There's legislation, there's OHS legislation, uh, there's codes of practice, there are social norms that define and give us some understanding about the boundaries of that, that kernel of the employment relationship, what is reasonable or unreasonable in terms of direction, control and obedience, that, that, that nub uh, uh, of relationship. Uh, now, that's... That's an externally defined, that's a, a, a you know, that's a, a workplace is an external set of, uh, of, of conducts uh, everywhere else in the labour market. And then you look at a performer uh, and suddenly uh, the, the, the workspace of what is the boundaries of what is reasonable um, uh, direction and control actually are about uh, 
workplace is here, the employment relationship is here, because nowhere else in the labour market would it be in any way prima facie reasonable to say, take off your clothes, <laughs> have sex, experience pain, cry, inflict pain, all of these which are, which are inherent directions uh, that occur in the nature of performance, uh, prima facie, unreasonable off the scene, anywhere else in the labour market. Uh, but they are, and these are, these are directions that occur where the workplace, the employment relationship, is actually occurring in the most intimate, uh, you know, uh, generation of emotional and physical responses. Um, and, uh, and so I think, and there's no, there's no Fair Work Commission decisions that will tell you about what is reasonable or unreasonable directions for a performer uh, in, in that inner workplace. Uh, there's no uh, codes of conduct or, or legislation. Uh, it has very limited application to, to defining, uh, to telling us something about the reasonable and unreasonable um, uh, kernel of the employment relationship, one of control and, uh, and obedience. I think that's one, one issue that makes performers um, quite you know, vulnerable in that sense because their workplace is not just about externalities, it's also the site of work uh, the employment relationship itself is occurring inside the self. Uh, and, and then I think the second key thing that uh, is crucial to, to why performers, uh, and, and particularly female performers, uh, are also another reason uh, of, um, of particular vulnerability, is all the sort of case law and legislation that Nadine knows about and runs cases for... Um, uh, sorry, oh my goodness, <laughs> Nicolette <laughs> runs cases about in her legal practice, uh, have limited application to performers. So I, I think about the last 20 years um, in my working lifetime, there's been a number of really important uh, improvements and new entitlements that have been introduced in the labour market that unions have won cases on uh, that, are, that are actually quite expressly about... Uh, providing uh, additional protections to women, specifically, uh, and to encouraging women into the labour market and providing uh, protections for them. So I'm thinking about, just in my sort of 20 years of working in employment law, I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, the uh, um, permanent part-time as an employment category uh, is now a right in the private sector, and it never used to be, in, you know, just in, in my working life, permanent part-time, the right to maternity leave, uh, and the corollary of that, most importantly, is the right to a job to come back to, uh, the right to um, request f uh, flexible working hours and working arrangements, uh, even discrimination law, even uh, unfair dismissal, even the new one that's, uh, that currently um, uh, the ACTU and we also are running uh, in the Commission in relation to the right to elect, uh, uh, instead of t getting paid leave, the right to elect time off in lieu of leave, which is an actual, at the, at the employee's election, highly beneficial clause. All of these protective provisions and entitlements that unions have fought for, labour market-wide, have limited application to performers because performers, the nature of the work that performers do uh, is short-term, job-to-job, you never build up enough content, you know, continuity of service to actually accrue the entitlement to paid leave or to uh, you know, maternity leave, the right to a job to come back, to uh, flexible working hours. So I think, I think performers, there's this dumb, double whammy uh, of vulnerability. Uh, uh, you know, so so uh, all, a lot of these, not all, but a lot of these employment rights that apply labour market-wide that unions have fought incredibly hard for, um, don't apply 
or apply, you know, have limited application because of the nature of performance work uh, as point number one. And then and the double whammy is that when you do get a job and, you know, and your reputation is dependent upon this job in order to get your next job, the workplace, the employment relationship is occurring, you know, in this most intimate inner space as well in a way that just doesn't apply to any other job. So I think that makes, that sets us up, that's the backdrop I think that makes, um, you know, it, uh, a particular set of circumstances of precariousness and vulnerability to, uh, for performers and, and even more acutely uh, for female performers. Yes, thank you Zoe, that's, that's true. I want to move on to Fern and talk to her about a more international perspective on these issues and, and Canada particularly where Fern resides. Today in The Age there was an article on women, gender pay gaps for women who are unionised versus non-unionised women and it was it was much steeper for non-unionised women. The gap was 18% versus 13%. So uh, that's another reason why we should all be unionised. Um, Fern, I know you're a big union, pro-union person. Can you speak to us about unionisation in Canada and also about the work you do with your federation and what it means for women generally? Surely. So FIA, for those who don't know, the International Federation of Actors is about 90 unions from 60 countries. And we were founded in 1952 in the chaos coming out of World War II to try to have an international voice for performers. And at that time, as it is today, women are the most vulnerable performers. We have the shortest careers, the most precarious work. <clears throat> And so at FIA, the kind of work we tried to do, we have a gender equality charter, you know. So everybody, we make these big, high international standards of things we want to have aspirationally, and then each union makes it their own at home in their, in their own country. And as we were discussing at lunch, of course, some of the countries that are way ahead of most of us are the Nordic countries, for good reason. I mean, you look at Sweden, Denmark, half of the TV I now watch is Danish TV because of the One Vision, cast locally, and then we all love the stories because they become universal stories. But it's very interesting right now in terms of the rate of unionization around the world because, I mean, you're lucky that we're all here today because of a great union like MEAA. In my home country, it's ACTRA. If it wasn't for the group action and the, the collective bargaining aspects of creating strong uh, agreements, you would have so few rights in the workplace. I mean, we're the mad, precarious, in Canada, self-employed. Europe, I have quite a bit of envy because there are some social protections in the European market, but most of us have a very roller coaster kind of life of great financial precarity. So in Canada, what we've done a lot is get the unions together. So ACTA was kind of the leader. We created the Canadian Unions for Equality on Screen. So you got the directors, the writers, all the technical unions, everybody singing from the same hymnal. And, and that made a profound change because the government, we mostly are publicly financed in Canada, and the government used to say, well, the industry doesn't agree. You don't agree on things. You all have different needs. And you don't have, you know, but when we all said, no, the key decision-making roles, there's a, there's a great issue of... Um, employment inequity, that women do not have half of the key decision-making roles in directing and writing and such. And in our second report that we just launched with Cues, 
a very short while ago, we really went after the public funders. You can do better. Step it up. Be bolder. And so what we did just literally three weeks ago, we got Telefilm Canada to say they will favor the financing of production that have women in as a screenwriter or women directing. And we're going to have 50-50 by 2020 emulating the Swedish model. So what we do at FIA is we all compare notes and take the best practices from who had the best idea I came here because Zoe and Chloe were brilliant at the FIA Congress in Sao Paulo about this very summit. And I said, I want to be there. This is, this is the world. If we all got to learn from each other to find out how the union stays strong, how the union stay in the forefront, and how we're capable of so much when we know what each other are doing about cultural diversity, about gender equity, inclusivity, it's, it becomes quite a beautiful world when we can help each other that way. And what do you think about quotas? Yeah. Well said. What's your view on um, quotas in the workplace? Well, we haven't gone for quotas. I haven't promoted them in Canada. But we have, with this new incentive we have, it's, it's like the Swedish model. This is where you need to get to. And if you don't get there voluntarily, then God damn it, you will have quotas. So quotas are kind of a failure in a system to me. You need a goal that you're working towards. And everybody has to agree, this is what we want to do. We you have a time frame on that. Yeah, we do, 2020. Okay, 2020. Yep. Okay. It's a good phrase, right? 50-50 in 2020. I, <laughs> I reckon you're going to get there. Um, so let's now hear some stories from people who are performing and who are managing their careers and in the case of um, Simone, a, a young child. Um, Simone, you've, you've recently had a... Well, you have a two-year-old and you're an actress and you have a very specific take on what that's been for you because it's your life and your experience and can you share with us how it's been for you to become a mother as an actress and and your direct experience of how that what how that's impacted on you and, and how you feel that's changed the perception of you mm. yeah um well as you've heard pregnancy discrimination is rife in australia i think it's one in two women experience discrimination while pregnant on maternity leave or when returning to work um, so as someone that was getting to the age where I wanted to start having kids, but also not at a point in my acting career where I actually wanted to, felt like I was, I wasn't where I wanted to be. And I didn't want having a child to, to limit me and set me back. So it, it was tricky to kind of decide what to do. In the end, I jumped in and then got really depressed and um, <laughs> had a child. Um, I think a lot of people, when they actually then become, they think they want to be pregnant, they become pregnant, and then they freak out a bit. Um, <laughs> well, well, I did. Um, and, and, but I, and uh, so I thought it would affect my career. I thought um, this is, that would be at least a time out for me. And in fact, it's had the opposite effect for me. Um, I got a role when I was, uh, about six months pregnant. Um, I was contracted to do a series of commercials with a national retailer and I thought, oh, that's it. They're going to boot me. Maybe I don't tell them, maybe I do. But for me, I, I had to tell them. I had to start that relationship out um, with honesty. And, and it was great. They said, that's fine. We'll work around it. It's no problem. You know, don't don't worry about the fact that you're, be, you're pregnant and your body's going to change. And so that was such a, such a 
surprise and such a blessing for me. And I think that gave me a bit of confidence at the start of my pregnancy to, to know that I could keep doing this. Um, and, and just looking around at other amazing actresses that have kids and do the juggle and manage it successfully. And I, um, I was saying to Anna before, it's I'm, having a child is such a, you know, it's such an amazing life experience and so raw and makes you so vulnerable. And that can only enrich your work as an actor. Um, it just gives you so much more life experience and so much more to work with. And there's certainly that juggle of do I keep trying for this thing that I want to do even though I'm not you know, financially benefiting from it too much and it's time away from my family and it's time away from uh, financial employment. Um, it's, it's, for me, it's something I have to keep, keep pursuing and keep doing because it's, it's my dream. And um, so I think for anyone out there that is sort of, you know, weighing that up, it's, it's not an either or. It's, you know, it's everything is part of you and you just can continue on life. I think that's really true. Thank you for that. Anna, can you talk to us about your experience of being a successful actress and some of the things that you've come up against, maybe negative things that you've come up against being a female specifically, um, and whether so far your career has been a positive thing or whether you feel like you've got an ongoing battle to sort of be heard um, as a woman or whether you feel that those battles are kind of behind you or how you experience your career now? Thanks, Nadine. Um, I think the issues that come up for me specifically when it comes to female empowerment in the workplace are around some of the things that Zoe was talking about just in regards to what the expectation is for a performer in your workplace, particularly around sex and violence. And um, what I see in my own career, but also in careers of people around me, people that are mentoring, people that are mentoring me, is this consistent battle with um, what is appropriate, where are the boundaries, where are the lines. And we haven't got a culture that's very good at talking about boundaries. And we don't have a lot of courage in that way. We, we're, not in, we're not teaching our young actors. And as professionals, we're not actually pushing forward a culture that says, the, the thing that makes me a good actor is actually not this fearlessness and this boldness and this courage to do it all, but the sensitivity with which I do it. Um, and it's really engaging with that and sitting down with other actors, to me, and being the person to be awkward and go, you know, before we do this kissing scene or this sex scene or before I, we do this really violent scene, I just really want to talk through what my boundaries are, what your boundaries are. And I think the issues that have come up in my career have come from... The learning, those boundaries being crossed, but not even realizing there were boundaries until they were crossed. Um, you know, particularly with sexuality. Um, I mean, I, my, my first job, my first big job was underbelly. So from the get-go, it was, and I, I went in with vigor. Like, don't get me wrong, I don't regret that job at all. Um, but there's something that happens when you you sort of go in with the fearlessness of like, I will put my sexuality on the table creatively, um, and 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 really allow for people to, um, to, to see that, to engage with that creatively. Um, what I found was that it did have a flow and effect for me in my career later on, and an expectation that I would be sexually available, both 
in character and out of character, that, um, that I would be automatically comfortable with people talking about my body with me on the street or in a class or on set, um, with people um, automatically feeling they were allowed to touch my body, other actors. Um, and then, and, and so this flow and effect that happened on these set, in professional sets, and I think th there's another thing I'll just add after this is about what happens when we get to the, um, the more indie realm where equity's not able to, to, to foster us so much as this, I'm just hearing horror stories, but on this high level um, of like commercial television, having these situations where I, I actually was starting to feel as though it was verging on um, harassment because I, I didn't want my body to be talked about like that. I didn't want my body to be touched like that. But there was no one in my mind at the time as a young actor, there was no one to talk to, there was nowhere to go. I'd talk to my bosses, my bosses wouldn't be happy with the circumstance because it doesn't work so well in commercial television. And I, I would either be silenced or I would lose my job. And so that was the mindset. And I see that in younger actors all the time. Um, and what I'm, I guess the culture that I'm really interested in, in finding is this, is this ground where it's okay to go, Actually, right now in these circumstances, yes, I know that we're trying to make our day. I know that we're running behind. I know that there's a, there are ADs yelling. But in this particular circumstance, I don't feel comfortable. And if I don't feel comfortable, then there's a boundary. Um, and right now, that doesn't seem to be okay. And I, I did hear a story recently of an actor. And we, d we talked about this deeply. It was about nudity and sexuality. And she'd signed a contract and, um, to, to say that she'd do it. And then she got on set and there was just something a bit off. It just wasn't right. And so she said no. And it, it, it's a really, you know, all of a sudden the legalities come into that situation. Are you allowed to say no? But then all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a second. Are you paying for my body? Do you own me? And I just think that these are, on the sex side, those are some really big conversations to have. But on the violence side too, I did like a, a more indie production this year and um, I there was sort of these thriller elements to it and I died in it. It was, you know, pretty hectic. Um, <laughs> but, but I turned up on the set and, and to a degree it was funded and, and really supported, but then to a degree it also wasn't. And there were certain elements that looked on the outside like they were all backed up, but I don't think that they had, they didn't have full um, union covering, I don't believe, because what happened is that their fight choreographer didn't turn up. And so they're like, well, we're going to do the killing scene anyway. Um, do you mind if we stab this thing into part of your costume? And I had to say no. And, and have had to have that conversation where it was like, there is absolutely no way that I will perform on this set under these circumstances because not only does it put me at risk, but for every other actor that comes after me and is working around me, it says this precedent that you think as, um, as a filmmaker that, that we can be treated that way. Um, and and if, if we don't put up those boundaries to say, no, 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 we're, we're people. We, um, we actually have these, you know, we, we're, our bodies are not just, I heard one director describe um, his actors in this horror film that he'd made as meat puppets. And, um, and, he, and he sort of made this joke because it, it was another indie project and an actress had really injured herself and they pushed her to keep going and to finish something. And I was deeply disturbed by it. Um, and I feel like there is, there is sometimes, I know I sound really angry, I'm not that angry, but, I, but there, there, there can be this understanding of like, oh, it's just an actor, they'll do whatever we tell them, they don't even need to get paid, they'll just do it, they're desperate for it. And um, I really want 
there to be this culture where we are, we are respected, particularly as women, as holistic human beings that are actually gifting our sensitivity in our services and we're not, um, we're not just gonna, we're not just bodies. Thank you, sorry, that was very long. <laughs> that was great. Uh, I'm gonna ask you one more thing. Given that the, you know, that we have an industry which isn't, it's a small pie, our industry, and every year we turn out amazing graduates from all our, you know, performing arts schools, many of whom I meet on grad day for the union and they're fantastic and they're eager and they're keen and they want to do anything to get a job. And I mean anything to get a job. And you think, how do we get that message to those people? Because it really starts with them, right? I mean, we kind of know what's what, and we're older, and um, we kind of know our boundaries, and, and probably the stakes, I mean, the stakes are always high if you have to walk off a job, or you have to say, listen, I can't do that. The stakes are always high. But where, do, where does a 19 or 20 year old find their voice who's just left NIDA? How do they do it, Anna? I genuinely think it comes into education. I think that it's, rather than they come out disempowered, sort of full and going where to, and I'm having conversations with acting students that have just graduated where they're like, oh, I'm trying to negotiate. They, they said they'd pay me $100 for this whole entire film. And then now they're going to pay me 50 And I'm like, just don't do it. Um, just don't do the thing at all. Um, which I know is sort of this radical idea, but it's, it's actually trying to, from the very beginning, have this sense of self-worth and go, no, you're artists. You, you have this... You have this inherent beautiful ability um, to, to give of yourselves and, and display humanity. And it's so valuable and it's so beautiful and you're, you're worth so much that it is, to me, it's coming in at that level. And, and, and ev for the, I guess for the ones that don't yet have it, um, trying to create a culture where it's, a bit what we were discussing earlier, where it's okay to say no, where your no's actually reflect your career as equally as your yeses do, where you go, I'm, I have such a respect for my industry and for my colleagues and for myself um, that it's a really beautiful thing that I'm not working right now because um, what I'm really working towards is this beautiful, valuable job where I, I can really give my, my craft. Yep. Thanks, yeah. Anna. I, I'd say definitely by, by knowing yourself and your values, which is hard to do sometimes when you're 19, um, and know what you're trying to work towards, you can, you can definitely have more confidence in your voice and in saying no. Um, and I think Anna made a really good point that when you say no, you're not just saying no for you, you're saying no for all the other women that would come, you know, behind you. So even if it's just saying no to, you know, a really sexist commercial, doing an audition for that, like, yes, it's, a, it's another job and you want another job, especially if they don't come around so often, but then the commercial, maybe it won't have a huge impact if you're not in it, but if every actress said no, then there wouldn't be so many women washing clothes on, you know, on TV. So, <laughs> yeah. so just in regards to saying no, or in a moment where you walk onto a set and you, the conditions have changed and you have to pull out of something, you have to bail. Um, what's the backup, like, Nicolina and Zoe, can we talk about the legalities of how we then get support legally or from the union and, and, how, and how we go about getting that support? Um, 
Well, in terms of, of saying no, and I definitely um, liked what, what Anna and Simone was just, were just saying about that, I find acting, uh, acting as a solicitor for women, especially more junior women, including women in the media, that they find they can't say no if there is a change to their contract where they've been expected to perform and, and do something and then they get on the set and at the last minute things change because their agent pressures them and says, well, you're not known yet, so why are you saying no to that? And we get asked that question a lot. And I find women who are, who are older actors, more established actors, more well-known, find it easier to say no because they know, well, they know they'll get another opportunity to have another job, but they also know they're known enough, they've got enough public presence that if they say no to something, they'll be listened to more by, by their agent and by the industry. And it's, it is quite difficult as a solicitor to, to give someone advice on that and say, well, it is, it is a breach of the contract. They've, they've breached the contract. They can't force you to do that. But then to have a young actress, um, yeah, because it is particularly women, who say, well, no one's going to hire me again. It's quite, it is. It's quite heart-wrenching as a lawyer. But legally, you can't be forced to, to, um, to do it if it's, if it's in your contract and, and you've agreed to do something and they try and change it on you at the last minute. So that's a legal obligation. You, you don't have to do that. But then it comes down, it comes to the next level. Will you get another opportunity? Will you get another gig? Will you get another job? So that's something that, that I can't answer as a lawyer. But it's a problem. Yeah. And Zoe, if an, if an, actor, an actress is working on a, a shoot that hasn't signed the MEAA agreement, I mean, and they come to... They wouldn't be. <laughs> no, but say they have. Um and they call you guys and go, I'm in this shit situation and I've been sacked because I wouldn't do X, Y and Z. What does the union do? Uh, well, certainly we would always help a union member, no doubt about that, whatever the circumstances, whatever agreement they've signed, although <laughs> work equity because there's a reason why all these clauses are in our industry agreements. Um, uh, I guess there's a couple of things to unpack from that. I mean, I, in, in terms of the, the range of um, issues particularly facing uh, female performers that I've experienced in, you know, uh, in my time with equity, uh, there's a couple of lessons. One is come earlier. Um, you know, I think I think um, Anna Anna's point is bang on. Uh, other than uh, you know having a union ticket, the most important thing that a female performer needs to do, I think, is to learn to negotiate the no. And I'm not really talking so much about no, I won't take that job or I will take yeah. that job because that's not for. Um, but in those circumstances where um, where there's a feeling of discomfort or there's uh, a, a, but. But to negotiate the no, I think, you've got to unpack that a little bit because there's a couple of elements in that. I think the capacity to have the tools to negotiate no means a couple of things. It means you've got to know your rights and the corollary of that is knowing that if you, um, if you make certain decisions that might actually limit other rights subsequently. So knowing about, you know, and I, and I think, and I can come back to that, but there are, you know, there are actual clauses in our agreements around, say, nudity uh, and sex scenes uh, and smoking uh, uh, that are there very much for a reason because they assist the process of negotiating the no and the yes and, and, and actually setting the boundaries. They, you know, and, I, and I think, unfortunately, uh, it, there's insufficient knowledge about what those rights are. So, for example, in the nudity provisions in our equity agreements, you have to have written notice 
uh, either in your contract that a sex scene will occur or that there'll be nudity involved and you need, uh, you need to be on written notice of full information like the episode, the extent of nudity, the, uh, the amount of physical touch. Uh, it's got to be a closed set. You have a right to bring someone along. If there's any changes to all of those uh, arrangements, uh, then you're entitled to further written notice. Uh, and the reason why there's written notice built into that is these are natural checks to empower you in that situation, the female performer in that situation, to genuinely, uh, to, to negotiate the no and conversely, to genuinely consent and to feel comfortable in that situation. And I guess the other part is the, is the consent uh, is not just to that moment and a feeling of safety in that moment, but also to think about the consequences of now in a digital age, seeing the imagery, um, or, you know, all over the place. And I, so a key thing is to know your rights. And I have to say, we've got to educate producers as well because it's only, you know, recently we've had a situation uh, where, you know, a, um, a, a reputable production company, a prominent um, actor, no written, con no written consent around, uh, around nudity. Uh, and, uh, and then clearly, uh, suddenly there's nudity on screen that was... Um, yeah, you know, um, the, the company argues that there was oral consent, but there was clearly no the 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 nudity protections had not been complied with at all, uh, and so it's really important that you know that that performers, if you uh, if you're putting yourself in the, if you're in that situation, that you think about um, uh, the capacity to well to negotiate the no, but what are what are the rights? What is my right to say yes to no? What are the, those sort of provisions are really important. And the other thing I'd say is come earlier rather than sort of, uh, you know, it's very difficult to fix a situation where either there's been a termination or an actor feels that it's just become so unsafe uh, that she's left the job, um, which happens, uh, or the point at which the relationship has become so toxic and bruised and fractured uh, that um, telling equity the story of that um, doesn't either help necessarily the, the, you know, the actor in that circumstance or the industry. And really we all, we all have an obligation to create a safe industry for all of us. So, so again, to unpack that, that capacity to say no is about knowing your rights, it's about finding your voice to negotiate in that moment and it's also, crucially, about a strong collective so that you know that the rest of the cast will stand with you if you, uh, you know, if you say no or if you, uh, you know, uh, if you need the support of the rest of the cast, the rest of the cast will, you know, will provide that support and will call bad conduct. Uh, and that is about, there again, about building collectivism and building, a, 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 you know, strong bonds between us as performers in an industry. Thanks, Sally. Fern, can you talk a bit about sort of nudity clauses and, and just the rights of women sexually in, in your mind, where that sits sort of internationally and where we're at. And, and is there a, a, indeed a discrepancy between countries or are they sort of on the same level playing field, do you think? That's a great question. Right now, I know in Canada, we have um, a lot of the women have learned their independent production agreement, which is our main agreement in TV and film and digital media, the best because of the skill they had to have in negotiating their nudity. I mean, it, it really teaches you your contract to know the intimate language, that you're working on it with your agent, because everybody has an attached rider to your contract. But around the world, pretty much, I think every country now that has an evolved contract has excellent nudity riders, because it's a part of our business. And especially for women, it's a part of your, your um, 
your image forever, your moral right to your own image. We assign our, our, our rights to our producers because we choose to do that. But you have to have protection in a world that oh, we're just living digitally, and so it's all the more prudent. And one other thing I just wanted to say in Canada that we managed to do was the, some young activists who kind of, they say, they play 16 to 27. And the name they call themselves is Yay, and it's Young Emerging Actress Assembly. And they, they congregate, and they're all professionals. They've been working since they've been children. But they really help each other through the nudity and the sexual harassment on set and what to do when the trainee, you know, AD is hitting on you inappropriately and what's harassment on set language. So in Canada and a lot of countries in the world, we've gone crazy to keep the harassment language really powerful in our contracts. So the, we have contractual language in, in my main agreement in Canada, and then you have your, your law, your, your country's law, but they're essential, because if not, your vulnerability just becomes like a chasm, right? So I like that the, the Young Emerging Artists Assembly learn to take care of each other and guide each other through the practices of how you talk to your agent about that. Um, so there's countries that still have a lot, a long ways to go, like India doesn't even have basic health and safety language. They don't even have like crash pads for stunt performers. They don't, they don't have anything. Bollywood stars make money, but everybody else no protections, no nudity clauses, nothing. So the, the world is in a state of constant dynamic change, and the unions that are evolved and have good contracts and good practices are the inspiration to the other countries trying to play up. Um, this question's a little bit out of the box, but I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Fern. Given that there's such a, a huge amount of pornography available in our, in our world generally and, and is out there really tapping young people and, and, and young men particularly who are f just forming their sexuality are kind of coming up with a fairly perverse notion of what femininity is, in my view anyway. Um, how does, what is the knock-on effect of this kind of all-pervasive concept of women as this sort of commodity? And is that, does that infect our industry? I mean, does it infect Hollywood? Does it infect the workplace generally? I, I think it possibly does and I think we were all very grown up and we sort of go oh yes but that's that's not us and we're not we don't deal with that stuff but it sort of has a kind of all-pervading impact on us culturally does it not? I suspect it's true that it's one of the ugliness of our world the pervasive pornography available to anybody with an internet connection so all the more fierce we have to be in countervailing and being you know coherent um, agents of change to fight against that and it's why we are union leaders, it's why we try to make change, it's why we try to aim high and work hard. Yeah, thank you. Um, just sticking um, for a minute with um, the image of, of, of the woman, uh, I'd love to sort of open it up to, and ultimately to you guys, to talking about ageing as, as a woman on camera, which is very hard to do, and behind the camera, or indeed across the arts, you know. Um, we've all got stories about, you know, we're all at various ages, but there's this unspoken thing of once you get to a certain age on screen, and I'm in that bracket now, where you kind of get asked to come in and test for mums. You know, you go from being a woman who's a three-dimensional character to kind of one word, which is a mum, and often you're <laughs> testing to be a mum of someone who's a 30-year-old man, and you're like, but the math isn't... Yeah, but, you know, we're just... And so there's a really bizarre kind of twisted view of what an older woman is and what she should look like on screen. An older woman should always just look 30-something, apparently. 
And what is that, that we're so frightened of, an, um, of actually celebrating or including even um, the energy, the persona, the spirit of an older woman who can bring so much to not only storytelling and, um, but, but to the workplace, to our community. Um, what is that and how do, we, how do we unpack that and how do we stop that? I mean, it's something, again, that's just all pervasive in our society. We sort of don't want to see old women's faces. How do we change that and where do you start with that? Fern, I'm going to ask you again. <laughs> I think it's a key decision-making role. I want more screenwriters who are women who are using their narrative power to describe the stories. And we do have, we've talked about all this weekend, unconscious and conscious bias. I mean, it's terrible. I, in, as a Canadian, I live next door to America, the craziest country in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the most ageist country in the world. The most eight. When I started working in recorded media, I was all 29 and a half years old. I'd done a lot of radio drama, but I was a thespian. I was a stage actor, baby. I said, nobody's going to hire me because nobody looks like me. Everybody in America is five foot two, eyes are blue, and, and that was the reality. And you know, it really hasn't changed because there ain't many women running studios in America. And so it's a big problem. Now, when we watch British TV, Danish TV, European TV, I don't know about Australian TV because I haven't got to watch too much since I've been here, but there, there is a greater depth of ages and sizes, and particularly UK. They've done something right. I mean, there's fantastic actors. But I, I know in Canada, we say after 36, your earnings as a woman tail off. Men's don't tail off till about 58. Uh, no, it's ridiculous. Know, it's, ridiculous. it's totally ridiculous. Just when you get really good at your craft, so just true. when you get really nuanced and you're understanding all the sophisticated things and what that lens means, then they say, oh, babe, you're too old. There is a, you know, a, a small good news story to inject in that in relation to ageism, and that is the recent Screen Actors Guild SAG um, uh, win in California, which was that they sued, uh, effectively, in shorthand, they sued um, IMDb, which is owned by Amazon, uh, and um, at the moment, effectively, they've won the right for uh, an actor to opt out of having their uh, age put up, because, as they argued, uh, um, it's... Uh, it's potential grounds for discrimination and the key, what is inherent, the inherent requirement of the job, of course, is not your actual age, but what age you can play. Uh, and so uh, they have one, now IMDB has got to, uh, if requested, uh, take down, because they were refusing to take down um, the date of birth uh, information on the basis of an actor's request. So here, I think, is a, you know, is a very clever way where discrimination law and the laws that you know, um, can be applied uh, in a creative way to, you know, to, to make an advance. Well, what about you, Zoe, just personally in your career as a, as, a, as a female? Have you ever felt that you've come up against certain elements of, of your, your career path because you're female? Um, well, I think sexual harassment is still a major issue uh, and not sufficiently spoken about um, in all industries, but probably particularly uh, in um, the creative arts industries. Um, and uh, we know that it's occurring. Um, I think one of the most um, um, s alarming elements of sexual harassment uh, in our industries is where it occurs and it's reported. Uh, and um, 
you know, established theatre companies, for example, um, don't do anything about it, uh, and it fractures the relationship, and it's the complainant, it's the it's the female who um, ends up, you know, leaving. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, that uh, and it was a um, uh, a significant agenda item in our national performers committee meeting on Saturday, uh, and we had an extensive discussion about uh, what we equity. Um, can do. I mean, I think our traditional practice has been, you know, when someone comes to us, we deal with, you know, that ca a real problem for us is, is um, actors will come uh, and uh, tell their story but not want anything to be done. Um, and frankly, um, uh, we as an industry and as a union have a responsibility aside just from, uh, you know, protecting and advancing the interests of one individual uh, and looking after... But also we have a broader responsibility to ensure that, you know, that we have safe workplaces uh, and that um, when we see it, we call it in some way um, protecting, you know, and, and there's, there's a... You know, there's some navigating to do around uh, uh, protecting indiv individuals in those circumstances. Uh, but... Um, you know, sexual harassment is still a matter that needs to be called uh, when it's seen uh, and, um, uh, and uh, actors need to feel safe that when they come to the union they're, they're, there is something that can be done and that they can trust um, equity to, uh, to land them in a better place. And there are, I don't think we're sufficiently good at sharing the good news stories. I mean, I, you know, uh, ex the, the example I gave just a moment ago of the, um, of the breached nudity clause, uh, the outcome was that, um, that the master that had been sent to the broadcaster was recalled, was re-edited, not once but twice, to the complete satisfaction of the performer. Uh, it was taken down from the free streaming um, um, commercial network site uh, and so the whole master was then, uh, you know, re-edited, sent back, uh, and then uh, any subsequent plays now are, um, you know, are compliant, uh, uh, and uh, and all overseas international broadcast use from now on. Now, I mean, you think about that for a moment. Had that performer not trusted uh, that something could be done to address this situation, then there's a lifetime of of feeling that, you know, there's my body. It's the sort of stuff that you're just out there um, of, uh, you know, and so I, it, it, it's crucial that actors feel powerful, feel that they have rights, that they can say no, that they can, uh, you know, that the cast will stand with them, that equity will stand with them. Uh, uh, you know, these are, these are crucial things and they're achievable. They are indeed. I feel like we need to open up to questioning. I don't have a timekeeper. I don't have a <laughs> clock here. But there's a, there's a, we've got five minutes. Seven minutes. Four questions or for us to keep speaking? Questions. Let's, let's have questions. Dim our lights and lift the house lights a bit to, so we can... <coughs> I think it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hi. Sorry. I apologise for my voice. I have a question about... My name's Claire Pickering. I have a question about age. Um, I was at a casting, I've had two, you know, nearly every casting director's office I go to, they ask for your date of birth. Um, and for a long time I just used to put my playing age or just my actual day of birth, like 3rd of April. Um, one time I went to two auditions for the same commercial with 10 years apart. The first character I was auditioning for was in her 30s. The second was her 40s. So I just put the, the age of the, the role. 
But one casting director actually um, got very angry with me um, for not telling her how old I was and she told me that she had to know. So I guess my question is, what rights do we have in a casting office about revealing our actual age? That's a great question. Yeah. Is it an inherent requirement of the job? I would have thought not. I mean, I think the, um, the SAG decision stands for the principle that... Oh, sorry. But I think the, the key... You know, is it an inherent requirement of the job? No. It's, um, it's not. It's your capacity to act the age. Uh, and I, so I think the SAG decision stands for the principle that it, it's discriminatory um, uh, to require it. Um, I think Nicolette and I should have a chat uh, and see if this is, um, uh, you know, some advice that we can provide to casting directors um, that it's um, it's not an essential question to be asking. Nicolette, can you respond to that? It is, it is actually illegal for them to ask for your age um, in, in any job in Australia. It is actually... Yay! <laughs> illegal! Illegal! You heard it here from a lawyer. <laughs> it's illegal, guys. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> well, let's get some industry advice out there to that effect. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that, everyone? <laughs> How about that? Any other questions? Oh. And what did you decide to do? the IMDB decision too, won't we Zoe? And maybe also the agents as well so yep. that they're aware that, you know, the actors are saying no <coughs> legally. Because that is exactly what prompted SAG-AFTRA to take their action. Because when they found that casting associates were being told with birth dates after a certain year, don't bring them in. And was actually, the, and then IMDb had the tenacity, the temerity rather, to say, but it's, we're a news service, we're IMDb, we're factual, we're, you know. <laughs> and so in, anyway, Gabriel Carteris, the president of SAG-AFTRA, was, happened to be one of the lead actors in, in Beverly Hills 90210, and she happened at the time that she was that female, one of the ensemble leads, about 11 years older than her on-screen age, and it doesn't freaking matter. It's what you can play. But you have to be kind of realistic in your range. That's the only thing where casting directors get grumpy. I mean, Anna can't play 65. She just can't. <laughs> One day. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm Lauren. I'm an actor. And um, you guys talking about... Uh, clearly I'm young, I've just graduated from drama school, uh, about how, you know, those pressures are really put on us as younger actors of the society. But, you know, I may be naive in saying this, but look around this room and I don't see many of my peers around. So I guess my question to you guys is, how can I, being here, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be here as it is, like I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to be here, like I couldn't afford it. Um, how do I then bring the conversations we're having at this summit back into my generation of actors where, you know, it does begin, where we have to educate them? How do I get 
this conver- these conversations starting back to, I guess, my peers who, you know, can't afford to be here. All around the country we've started Young and Equity. In every branch of equity, in every capital city, we have, um, uh, you know, a new, and it's only sort of six, 12 months old, but we've had a number of successful events called Young and Equity, where, you know, young performers gather. Uh, it's a social event. We throw in some, you know, some chocolate and cheese or whatever it might be. Uh, there'll be a, a panel last week. We had a panel in Sydney about indie theatre. Uh, you know, we'll have... Uh, and, and it's a great turnout and it's a lively direct engagement uh, that, that, you know, extends beyond the industrial issues that, you know, that people generally associate with unions. Uh, and it, so, so we'll take your name and get involved. Aren't we podcast? Mm-hmm. I think... Yeah. So we can when we live stream the yeah the um, the recording of I don't, are all of the sessions recorded? There were some decisions that, that were chosen not to be recorded, but I think yeah. oh, I hope we were. I hope we were. <laughs> yes. Um, my name's Eliza. I'm an actress, but I also work a lot in crew. And my experience on set as a young female, when I was often assisting the actresses, um, there is a lot of. You know, you're often working with technical crews that are 80% male and things like that. I, I love how many males there are in the room today. Just wondered if you could speak briefly to the role that men can play in this conversation as we continue to find our rights and way forward ourselves. Yeah, that's a great. That's great. I mean, I, it is really lovely to see the men here today. It's fantastic. Thank you for coming, men. Oh, I mean, I just see you all as people, but of course you were men and women, aren't you? You're men and women. <laughs> that's why we're here, right? Because we're different. We're talking about the fact that we're different. Um, who, wants to talk, who wants to answer that wonderful question think, over there? Um, it is great that there are men here because it's not just women that have to stand up for, for women's rights, it's men as well and also women standing up for men's rights. You know, there are gender biases both ways and men miss out in certain aspects of life because they're stereotyped as well. Um, so I think it's, it's not... I mean, we are different, but we can all work together in this, in this quest for equality. And I can think. I throw into that? I mentioned that we had in our national performance meeting uh, on Saturday a whole intensive uh, day and uh, sexual harassment was an item on the agenda. It was uh, a prominent male Australian actor um, who put that on the agenda, uh, who insisted that we talk about it, who gave the briefing to the MPC... Uh, and uh, you know, and used some examples of of um, performer female performer friends of his, uh, and uh, and not only was he advancing it on the agenda because he was concerned about the well-being um, of uh, his colleagues in those instances, but because he had a genuine commitment to a safe workplace for everyone. He had a, you know an independent commitment that I'm you know uh, men do. Uh, there are good men who will stand and call this. And he was one. He put it on the agenda. And we will see, uh, you know, an education campaign in 2017 about this issue thanks to uh, him putting it on the agenda. Could, could I just add a little tiny bit to that as well? I, I think that it essentially comes back to this culture shift um, where men are not just sort of partnering to help lift him up, but as, a co- as men teaching men... Um, what it is to what about what it is to look at a woman and understand a woman and engage with a woman and work with a woman, um, and when you have male actors 
um, demonstrating respectful behaviour on sets to younger male actors, older crew demonstrating respectful behaviour to younger crew, you see that culture shift. Um, and so it's, I think, about getting some essential leaders and male leaders that are partnering that are, you know, specifically openly discussing it because I know the difference between working with men that essentially respect my sexuality and um, who I am as a performer, as a woman, and you see there's a, there's a whole bubble around. As you see these men respect you that are close to you, the others will too, but I've seen the opposite as well, where um, essentially it's gone the other way, whereas one, the minute one person goes, I have the right to disrespect her, everybody else feels they have that right too. That's really true, Anna. That's well said. There's a question here. one in that what can we do to help men and sometimes I think it's maybe the tiniest things and it comes down to consent mm -hmm. because I know that I found myself in situations and I know many other actresses and actors that have when you're in a dressing room and a tech barges in oh. or you're you know you're at the back of the theatre and the you know the sound engineer you're in your undies and that kind of stuff yeah. and I recently worked on something where there was a choir of eight-year-old girl, uh, eight thirteen-year-old girls, all getting changed in the change room, and the stage manager would come in and they'd be in their undies and things like that, and it was an absolute lesson for me because I realised how much I had normalised that for myself, yeah. and that it didn't get to the end of the production that I went, oh my god, this is not okay. Mm. Um, and the thing is, is this man was a beautiful man. He was a lovely man. He couldn't have done anything more to help you. But it just wasn't... It, it, well, it was like, you know, what was brought up yesterday about unconscious gender bias. And I think in the arts we're all kind of trained to be like, oh, you know, it's like we're artistic and creative and, like, nobody minds, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it's bullshit. No, but it is, that's really interesting. And it is that thing about our bodies. We become these kind of things where... That often happens to me on set and Anna too, where we have to put a, a radio mic on and people just lift my skirt up to put a radio mic on. You know, and, and, there are t t and as a younger person, I wouldn't have thought twice. And as I get older, I suddenly go, hang on, this isn't... Actually, I need to step off the set, I actually don't feel okay about this. And because people are just in their job, they're lifting your skirt or they're putting their hand down and they say, oh, sorry, 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 but they're still doing that to you and they're doing it to you all day long. Um, and, and it's because they don't really see your body as belonging to you personally. You're just, you're this thing that appears on a television screen. And so you become depersonalised in their mind. It's not because they're bad people. It's like the group of 13-year-old girls. That sound engineer, he wasn't thinking anything other than he just thought it was his job to get into that room and do what he has to do. But So how do we draw those boundaries up? And there's something we have to just do on an individual basis, well, job by job. That's it, that's exactly... That's so right, yeah. Feel empowered to negotiate your own boundaries. Yeah, that's not true. I'm so sorry, I'm just getting so excited. Um, but <laughs> but I, I, it might be worthwhile just mentioning on that bystander effect on our sets, just quickly, regarding particularly younger performers. Mm. I, I will say I was in a job um, in re re recently, and on the job, we all, had, we all got a bit of a weird vibe, and um, we didn't do anything about it. No one did anything about it. And um, because it was just a vibe, and it, the job, as far as I had known, because I was on it and I was getting paid for it and had gone through all of the right systems, was 
covered by equity, all this stuff, but when you get onto the job, there are just certain things that weren't quite right, um, particularly regarding the, the younger performers, the child performers. And we were all a bit like, oh, that's funny, made a few jokes about it, didn't take it seriously. This is a huge set. And a year later found out that um, the director had 50 child sex offences and um, was being charged. And we noticed this behaviour and no one did anything. And eventually, um, I got encouragement from someone on another job and they just said, if you don't say something, no one will do something. And so I ended up calling up the child, um, the child abuse hotline, ended up trying to reach out to a few different avenues, but it was like, I can't even tell you the degree to the way that this thing, the, as soon as this stuff went public, they just went whoop. Yeah. Um, and just in regards to, I walk now with this sense of like, you see something, <laughs> you say something. Yeah, good call. Yeah. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>